So today's reading is in John 11, 45 through 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the the whole nation destroyed. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and were asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just got a chance to look at the, what is it called? The, the trash mosaic up close. Oh, I haven't gotten to look at that one yet. Um, I feel like I'm always telling Amy that I'm the opposite of art. Like, I don't understand art. So I, I find this to just be incredible. So I would encourage you guys to come take a look at it in a minute. I'm going to put this down. All right. Well, we are here, and it is Sunday. Happy Sunday. Um, my name is Andrea. I serve as the pastoral associate at Christ City Church. If you don't know what that is, that is okay, because I don't really know either. Um, you'll, you'll see me around sometimes. I preach once in a while. Um, I lead worship once in a while. Um, sometimes we have a choir, and so it's really fun for me to be a part of that. Yeah, that's coming also. Can I just give a quick plug for the choir? It's coming, so prepare. Um, yeah, so I'm... I, I love this community. Um, I love Christ City, and um, I've been a part of, of this community here in this cafeteria for, um, gosh, almost six years now. And so it's been um, just such a transformative place for me to be. And I, I really, believe me, I want you to believe me when I say that I feel privileged to be just a part of the community, and I feel privileged that this is my job, that it, it blows my mind that this is my job. So um, I, I am just grateful to be, to be with you and that, um, that you guys let me be here. So thanks for that. <laughs> um, we are in our last little section series of our journey, of our long journey, through the book of John. And our aim um, this whole, for all three series has been um, to explore the writer's given purpose that he writes at the end of the book. These things, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And we've sort of unpacked over uh, the last year and then a little bit what, what that means, what that is. Um, So we've done that in three different series. The first was called A Story of Belief, 
The second series we did was a story of life. And this final section is titled Life, Death, and Life Again. Um, I have so enjoyed reading through and studying this book together as a community. If you've been with us the whole way or if you're just jumping in, we've got a few weeks left to go. You can get a reading guide that I brought up here to show you, a reading guide, to follow along with during, um, during the week. And the readings parallel the text that we'll be discussing here on Sundays. So you'll read it and then... Um, and then we'll talk about it on Sunday. So I would encourage you to grab one of these at the connection table um, after the service. So last week, Watson took us through the story in John chapter 11 of Jesus and some of his friends, including a man named Lazarus who died and Jesus brought back to life. So if you missed it, I would encourage you to listen to it via podcast, but a, a quick overview Lazarus, one of Jesus' friends, dies, and Jesus comes to visit his grieving family four days after his death and then calls him out of the tomb. And Lazarus comes out of the grave with grave clothes still on, and everyone is amazed. Yay, that is, that's the gist of the story. So our text today is a continuation of that story. It's like the aftermath of, of the story. Jesus has done this miracle in public, and now the religious leaders are trying to figure out what to do about this guy who, even though he's doing these good, wonderful things like healing people, um, but he, as, as we'll see, he has increasingly become a problem for them. There has been a pattern throughout John's narrative where Jesus performs a miracle, and then he has some kind of confrontation with the Pharisees. So in John 1, he turns water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And then right after that, in John, he has this sharp clash with the Pharisees that are selling, the religious leaders, because they're selling animals in the temple. And that's when he, he goes in and clears it out. In chapter 5, he restores a man who had not been able to walk and then gets into it with some of the leaders about his authority. So it's like miracle and then this confrontation. And then in chapter 9, Jesus restores sight to a person who is blind. And he and the Pharisees have this debate right after that about blindness, both physical and spiritual blindness. And here we are now at chapter 11, where Jesus has raised a man from the dead. And as we're going to see, this has led to, again, the same pattern of having this confrontation. Um, this story is important in the book of John because it marks a transition from stories of signs and miracles to the narrative of Jesus' death and ultimate resurrection. So this is a turning point for us today in the book of John. Throughout the whole book, the religious leaders push back on Jesus, the whole thing, and as we've seen, but they continue to tolerate him while he wasn't threatening to them. This miracle, though, this one does it. This is, the, this is the last one that they feel like they can tolerate. Lazarus has come out. So Lazarus has come out of the tomb. And so let's, we're going to pick up today in uh, chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed. And he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was about to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather into one the dispersed children of God. So from that day, they planned to put him to death. So this is the last miracle that serves as the impetus for the plot to kill Jesus. He's done all these other things, but like this is the final straw. And it's it's funny, like that it's the last miracle Jesus performs serves to highlight the final miracle that Jesus will do in the cross and the resurrection, which is coming. John is the only gospel author to recount this story. And it's ironic that raising Lazarus to life serves as the impetus to Jesus' death. But the, the power here is that Jesus' death only precedes his resurrection. So we have life, and we have death, and we have life again. And it's, it's this power, it's Jesus' resurrection power that is threatening to the religious leaders. This is what we see throughout John's gospel, Jesus and the kingdom of God as threatening to the powers that be. So the Pharisees find out about what happened um, with Lazarus and they call a meeting. What are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. They react so strongly to Jesus here because of the risk that Jesus poses to their status and their power. We know if you look throughout history, we can, we can see that in almost every civilization throughout history where humans are, there are power dynamics present. And, and where power dynamics are present, systems of oppression have existed. You can just see it all the way through human history. It, it doesn't always look the same, and present itself up front the same, but it's all basically the same stuff. And systems are really tricky because they're able to evolve and that's how they survive. You kind of figure out one system, maybe get rid of it, but it just recreates itself into something else. Humanity has used race, gender, religion, nationality, sexuality, economics, more things to come up with systems to win and hold power over other people. We know this is true because we live in America and we can see that today. So the the system in Jesus' day wasn't exactly like ours, but it still wielded the same kind of corruption. It's the, the same thirst for power and control, the same trouble for people who dared to challenge the status quo, like Jesus. So let me give you just a, a real quick overview of the political structure of Judea, which was the, the area that, that this is all happening in at this point in history. So Judea, this is a helpful map. I know it's really small, but... Um, We're not going to look at anything specific. So this is Judea. You're welcome. Um, Judea was an occupied Roman territory. It had been conquered by Rome. And occupied territories or provinces, as they were also called, were overseen by Rome-appointed governors who stayed largely out of the affairs of the territory as long as they paid their taxes and nobody started a, a revolt or like a revolution. 
So Judea was governed legislatively by their own people. The chief legislative body in Judea was the Sanhedrin, or a council. So in, in the scripture that we're talking about today, they talk about putting a council together. That is likely meaning the Sanhedrin, which was composed of uh, two different kinds of people, Pharisees and Sadducees. So Pharisees and Sadducees were different groups with different roles and beliefs, which I won't get into all the details of that today. But it's important to know that, that both of them had political, legislative, judicial, and religious functions. No separation of church and state, no checks and balances here. It's just all put together. And while they couldn't sentence anyone to death which is why later they had to appeal to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to get rid of Jesus later. They, they still held real power in Judea, the, the power that mattered most in the daily lives of the people who lived there. So this is the group that Jesus is constantly criticizing in the Gospels as corrupt hypocrites who are exploitative of the people they govern for their own gain. It's this group of people. And this, again, this is the council that's called together after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the Sanhedrin. They, they all get together and they, they have this realization that their whole system is threatened by Jesus and they react the way that power usually reacts to a threat to itself. They react out of self-interest and out of fear. From, from a practical standpoint, they were afraid that if Jesus continued drawing a crowd like he had been and appearing to start like some kind of movement in Judea, they were afraid that the Romans would think it was some kind of revolt or rebellion and they'd come down hard on the entire province because that was in their history. That's the Roman style. The, the religious leaders were, were legitimately afraid of the obliteration of their entire nation as a matter of survival, for sure but they were also thinking about themselves. If Rome brought down the hammer to quell a rebellion, they would lose their position and lose their power. They, they had this working agreement with Rome. They were pretty autonomous. So they had this working agreement with Rome that would be gone along with their control. If Rome thought that there was a rebellion, there's no way that they would let the people govern themselves anymore. And this was so threatening to them that they plotted to get Jesus killed. And as we'll, see, as we'll see in the next chapter, they try to get rid of Lazarus too. They're trying to get rid of all the evidence. 20th century Scottish theologian William Barclay writes this scathing critique of this plan in his commentary on John. He writes, when a person has to support a position by destroying the evidence that threatens it, it means they are using dishonest methods to support a lie and they know it. Truth, truth to power is generally not well received. <laughs> so this is the decision they come to, to kill him, to get rid of him. And it's terrible. It's terrible. But in some ways, I, I think we give the Pharisees and the Sadducees a bad rap. Uh, it's, it's bad. But... I think that we actually have more in common with them than we think. Maybe not always the self-interest part, but the fear, definitely the fear. I was challenged by a devotional I read this week to empathize with the fear 
of the Pharisees. Yes, they are being asked to give up this corrupt system they're in, which benefits them, but they're also being asked to give up their own sense of identity and belonging. They had a choice in how they reacted to the resurrection power of Jesus. They could follow him or they could kill him. And we'll see too, the people in the beginning of the text that we're looking at today, the witnesses to the miracle of, of Lazarus, they had the same choice too. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So they had the same choice, believe or, or not believe. And I want to I pose to us today that we're the same. When we are faced with the resurrection power of Jesus in the world and in our lives, we face the same choice and we react one of two ways. We either draw nearer to Jesus or we try to get him out of our lives. Jesus proves to be as much of a threat to us as he does to the corrupt systems and structures of the world. And it's right to ask ourselves, what are the ways that we cling to power in our own lives? How do we try to get rid of the evidence of Jesus in our lives so we don't have to give up something that we'd rather have full control over? John is a story of belief by the author's own admission. We've, we've unpacked in earlier sections of this book what it means to believe, that it's not simply an intellectual act, but it's an act of surrender and dependence. It's living as if something is true. The stor- this story and the revealing reactions of both the crowd and the major religious leaders of the community continue to point us to understand that unbelief is not a lack of information. It's a posture. Are we open to what Jesus is doing, both in the world and in ourselves, or are we not? I think that there's this this unfortunate dichotomy in American Christianity between, um, between what we would call social justice and then personal formation. They've like become opposed from one another somehow. And honestly, like it, ch- different churches and different individuals, we all typically emphasize one or the other, even though they actually are inextricable from one another. A couple weeks ago, Justin preached on what is sometimes called the greatest or the first commandment, um, in which Jesus is asked in the book of Mark, which commandment is the most important? And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. The second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So there's, there's no greater emphasis on our own transformation or the transformation of others or the systems we create. They're bound together. One of the things that I I love so much about this community is our commitment to justice at every level, uh, globally, nationally, locally. It has has been life-changing for me. When you are paying attention, you start to recognize that corrupt systems and exploitative power are everywhere. 
I, I love that we have a commitment and a passion to actively dismantle white supremacy, patriarchy, wealth inequality, um, unfair and unjust policies and structures that um, disproportionately disadvantage people based on socioeconomic class and race and sexuality. We have by no means arrived, I'm gonna say that, we are still in desperate need of God's grace and grace from one another to continue to grow in this way. But through this community, I've come to understand that those things, all those systems, all those structures, that those matter to God and therefore should matter to me. It's right for us to, to talk about them and work against them, but if we stop there, if we don't, recognize the ways that sin and corruption infiltrate not just systems and culture, but they also infiltrate us. We, when we do that, we get it wrong like the Pharisees. They refuse to face the unjust structures within themselves. They ignored that, that universal human tendency towards power grabbing and then complacency once you have it. They, they didn't want to kill Jesus because he threatened the nation as much as that he threatened them, their power, their position, their control. What are the things in our lives that need to be dismantled? Is our fervor to undo the unjust systems of the world for the sake of the kingdom matched when it comes to what we need to dismantle in our own hearts and our own lives? We can't do one and then leave the other behind and claim to be following Jesus. We find ourselves in this same predicament um, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in. We can tolerate Jesus, we can even celebrate Jesus, until Jesus becomes too threatening, when the cost of following him becomes too high, when it starts to affect our relationships, our spending habits, our values, we start to consider if it's actually worth it. We want Jesus on our own terms, or we want him to go away. And when we do this, we've come to the same conclusion as the Pharisees, Jesus is too risky, get rid of them. In the book of John, John uses this metaphor kind of all throughout his book um, of light and darkness to describe the kingdom of God and then the world. In the first part of the book, he writes that in Jesus was life and that life was the light of all people and that the light shines in the darkness. And then in chapter three, the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light. Darkness does not like light. By nature, light overwhelms darkness. It's, it's, it's an opposing force. The problems that we face today, personally, nationally, excuse me, globally, have deeply spiritual foundations. Racism, greed, selfishness, exclusion, all of these things are opposed to resurrection and opposed to life. And power and control are blinding for us. They create 
both personal and societal darkness in which we cannot see or hear God in the world or in ourselves. So what is the reaction, what is our reaction to light and darkness? What is our reaction to the power of resurrection? That's what we're asking ourselves in this scripture is forcing us to ask ourselves. And even more than that, what is the cost of walking in that light? When we submit ourselves to Jesus's resurrection power, we don't just risk the foundations of our person, we face danger. Verse 53, so from that day on, they planned to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked about openly among the Jews, but went from there to a town called Ephraim in the region near the wilderness, and he remained there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and were asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so that they might arrest him. Jesus knew the danger in threatening the powers that be. This, this verse tells us he no longer walked around in the open until it was time to go to Jerusalem. I mean, even earlier in, in chapter 10, the people wanted to stone him. And now, just a few verses later, his life is at risk again. The memory of danger is still fresh to him and to his disciples. They, they knew the danger. Even, even the people in the story knew the danger. This happened right before Passover, which was one of the major holidays that almost everyone in the region came to Jerusalem to observe. And while they're all there, like in the temple together, preparing, they wonder whether or not Jesus is going to come because of the danger to him of, of showing up. What do you think? Surely he will not come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that anyone who knew where Jesus was should let them know so they might arrest him. This is what we follow Jesus into we follow him into what Barclay calls the wilderness of being an outlaw, of being targeted by both outsiders and insiders. This is the high price that we pay to follow Jesus, to pursue light. And I get that it's high, I feel it. But I want to remind us that we are promised life. These things are written so that you may believe and have life. And, and I can honestly stand here and tell you that I have seen it. I, I, I don't have it all figured out. If you know me even a little bit at all, you know that that's true. I, I, I daily have to pry my fingers off of elements of my life that I want to control. I, I still have way too much unchecked privilege. I have too many ignored responsibilities. I am consistently astounded by the depth of my own ignorance. But I have seen it. There are people in this community, there are people in this room that I have watched walk through pain and rejection and confusion and loss because they choose the Jesus way of life. And they have looked me in the eye and they have spoken to my heart and told me that it's worth it. Yes, oppressive systems, unwieldy power, those things have always been around, but so has life. 
the real kind of life. And we know this because we stand amongst what the author of Hebrews calls a great cloud of witnesses. It is amazing to recognize the risks that people have taken to follow Jesus, to pursue the kingdom of God in the world, to push light, bring light into darkness. I'm really privileged today to be preaching during Black History Month, um, especially as we look at today's text. African Americans are, are our foremothers and forefathers in following Jesus the outlaw. So many of them risked everything because of their association with Jesus and light and followed him even to a cross. And there are so many stories. After becoming a civil rights icon, Rosa Parks lost her job, as did her husband, and received constant death threats. She continued to dedicate herself to the eradication of racial inequality until her health would no longer allow her to. Fannie Lou Hamer was a civil rights leader who willingly took a target and put it on her back for speaking up against unequal treatment of black Americans, especially in regards to voting rights. The, the societal system in power was so afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer that when she gave a speech at the 1964 Democratic National Convention, they interrupted the televised feed with this like impromptu speech by the president that was just long enough to cut her off. She was shot at, she was beaten, she was assaulted multiple times. She continued that work until she died. Ida B. Wells was a journalist who documented and exposed the horrific practice of lynching in the United States. Her office and her presses, her printing presses were destroyed. She faced so many death threats that she had to move cities. Darkness does not like being exposed in the light. Martin Luther King Jr. had a 75% disapproval rating at the time he was assassinated. Before that, he faced constant threats aimed not just at him, but his family, including his children. He faced attempted attacks, slander, and was killed because he said things like, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Even though he knew he risked his life, he chose to return to Memphis, to continue fighting. He wanted to stand in solidarity with African-American sanitation workers who were advocating for civil rights and economic justice, and that's where he was murdered. He knew the risk. Last year, I got to read um, one of James Cone's books. I got to read The Cross and the Lynching Tree. It's this book that tries to make theological sense of racist lynching practice in America. It recounts the way many African Americans, including the, the, the huge numbers who are unnamed in history, it recounts the way that they not just survive, but they actively pursue the way of Jesus in the face of ultimate risk. I encourage you, go buy it and read it. And when you read it, recognize the great cloud of witnesses that we stand amongst. There, there are, of course, so many more stories to tell of, of people who faithfully followed Jesus, the outlaw, in, directing, in, in, in directly confronting oppression, 
um, and directly confronting opposition to the kingdom of God in the world and in themselves. I got to hear um, Ruby Sales, who's a, a civil rights leader who was almost killed as a teenager because of her work. Um, I got to hear her speak last fall, and knowing a little bit about her story especially, it was profound to hear her boldly proclaim that there is hope in history. This, this is the great cloud of witnesses we walk with. And isn't that a privilege? The story, the story in John is so powerful because we see ourselves in it. First, we can see ourselves as the ones who lay with Lazarus, dead in the tomb. We are the ones that Jesus calls to come out from the dark into life. Praise God. And, and then because of that, we become witnesses to the life-giving resurrection power of God. And now we no longer lay in the dark tomb with its ever-increasing stench of death, but we stand outside of it with Jesus to call forth life. And we call forth life in ourselves and in the world, even though we know it will put a target on our backs. Jesus poses a serious threat to death and all the things that are related to it. And he, he doesn't just do away with the things of death, but Jesus exchanges it for, an, for unimagined life. In the next few weeks, we're going to see how Jesus willingly goes to Jerusalem, even though he knows it will lead to his death. But we know that after that is life again. My prayer for us is that we don't turn away from the things that Jesus threatens in the world or in ourselves, but we push into them knowing that life is possible my prayer is that because we, we know and understand that God is freeing people from death, and that includes us, that because we know that, we confront the darkness in the world and we confront the darkness in ourselves. We're going we're gonna to transition in a second back to a time of, of worship and reflection. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. Um, the... The invitation to us this morning is to consider where in our lives we are resisting the resurrection power of Jesus. I think for some of us, the Spirit is asking us to abdicate our control over our lives or a specific area of our life to let it be transformed. I, I think for others of us, God is inviting us to display the kingdom through acts of compassion, through justice, through mercy, through speaking truth to power. It's a responsibility and a privilege that we all carry. Usually we have communion during this time. Um, we're gonna observe communion through our community lunch today after service. So the time that we're gonna, that we're gonna enter into is a time for you to, to just listen and reflect on what the scriptures have, have brought to us this morning, on what has been revealed. So we're gonna have um, prayer counselors at the prayer stations. And I, I also, I wanna say that um, 
the, the reason that we have prayer counselors at the prayer stations is not um, because the people who are over there have figured it all out and because we're going to give you some kind of answer. Um, we, we have prayer stations because um, we're a community and we stand, we stand together. We help each other figure out and recognize what God is saying, what God might be prompting us to consider. And we can't do that without one another. And so I encourage you to, um, during this time of reflection, um, if you have questions, if you just are confused, if you feel like God is stirring something in you, talk it out. Talk it out with, with another person. Um, so I'm going to open up our reflection and worship time and prayer. So would you stand up with me? God, thank you for your word. Thank you that, um, I thank you that even when the Bible is confusing and there are things about it that I don't know what to do with, that, um, that your spirit still resides there. Thank you for being gracious to reveal things to us in many different ways, including the Bible. This morning, God, I, um, I bring before you that I don't, I, I don't know how to relinquish a lot of the, the things that I like having control over in my life. Um, I confess to you that um, sometimes it just seems so much easier to just, you know, give money to something or um, talk about injustice and not actually live that way. And, and I bring that to you this morning. I thank you for your presence. I thank you that, um, that we can know that you are always here, even when we don't recognize you, but that you are. I pray, God, that you will enable us in this space um, to be able to, um, to hear you and to see you, that you would give us the eyes and ears and hearts to be able to recognize when it's your voice, to recognize when it's your movement, um, and for us to respond to that. Would you give us the ability to do that? We lift up the ways that this is confusing and we just want to thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that we stand amongst. Thank you, God, for the ways that we're allowed to see um, what you've done through other people in history, um, even if we can't fathom that for ourselves or doing that for ourselves. Um, thank you, God, that, um, that there's no difference between ordinary and extraordinary people, that that's not a thing. Um, but thank you, God, that, um, that you are extraordinary um, and that in our ordinariness that we can, that we can just look to you um, for, the, for the way and the right thing. Um, thank you that we get to do this in community. Thank you that um, the great cloud of witnesses is here too. We are grateful. Would you meet us this morning? Amen.